Welcome to this latest edition of Eusebius on Times Live. I've got two aims in this entry. The first is a bit of explainer journalism. There is a news item that is currently a prominent news item that many of you might have heard on radio, seen on TV, or online on a site like timeslive.co.za. And that has to do with legal action that has been initiated by various, mostly political parties, some civil society organizations, and at least one policy analyst, and that is legal action taken against the state, and specifically ESCOM as a state-owned entity. And that is in relation to energy and security, and the rolling blackout that we currently have at stage six for the most part. And there are a bunch of demands being made on the state in relation to the rolling blackouts. And in the next two days or so, the litigants want them to respond to a lawyer's letter with those demands included in the letter. And I wanted to explain to you exactly what that letter of demands contains. And then the second aim of this entry is wearing my hat as a political analyst and specifically a contributor and analyst for Times Live, I wanted to give you my take on what is going on here, firstly politically, and secondly, at the intersection of politics and law, what I think at a gut level, and drawing on more than gut, my knowledge and experience of the intersection of politics and lawfare, whether or not there are good prospects of this succeeding, and whether it matters, or whether the politicians that have initiated this action can gain something politically regardless of the legal odds of winning a case against the state on the matter. So that in a nutshell is what I'm going to do over the next five to ten minutes or so and I'm going to do it as simply as possible hopefully without loss of nuance so that you can understand it, you are up to date, you're better informed and you can enter discussions about this over the water cooler uh, with a little bit more confidence than you might otherwise, unless you have read the lawyer's letter closely, um, like some of us had to and have to, because it's part of our work. You're listening to Eusebius on Times Live. That's this latest podcast on Times Live. And it's me, Eusebius McKaiser, exploring the major issues of the week. That means you're going to hear a lot of law, politics and ethics, how they intersect and how important these stories are in the life of all South Africans. When people zone, their children must know these are sellouts. They put saliva on the paper. Mr. Julius Malema whispered and said sing it sing it and then they shared that zone no i'm not going to apologize can i have my ipad please so they stole it So let me start off firstly with explaining what this lawyer's letter contains so a number of law firms combined um, have been approached by the various litigants. And the letter to the minister that I have is one specifically coming from Mabuza Attorneys. And this is Minister of Public Enterprises, Pravin Gordon, but also to Andres, Andre Dereta as the CEO of ESCOM. 
Question number one, factual question, who are the people initiating legal action? Well, 10 of them are listed, and I'll just literally tell you who they are. General Bantuholomisa, UDM, that is, then Musi Maimane, a bold one South Africa, Bosa, Inkata Freedom Party is also listed, they being represented uh, in terms of the contemplation of this litigation by their Secretary General. Uh, the National Union of Metal Workers, interestingly, also listed, uh, the fourth ones to be listed, um, and that's obviously no surprise, NUMSA is the biggest single trade union in South Africa. They've got over 338,000 members, and in particular, Ivan Jim has joined this action. Then interestingly, I want to potentially interview him, um, Lukona Nguni, you will know him as a broadcaster and as a political analyst, radio host as well, and he's listed fifth, simply as, quote, an adult male policy analyst, so not attached for purposes of this litigation or potential litigation to the Ravonia Circle, it seems to be in his private capacity. Six, Mr. Piwe Meshlo, who is the owner of Ikasi Farming, and they're a small-scale broiler business farm and a supplier to hawkers down in East London. Seven, Nsekiye uh, Mkhaiya Real Estate Limited, and this is a real estate agency. Uh, number eight, The Circle, which is described as a voluntary active citizenship organization, and they've got membership throughout various provinces from KZN to the Western Cape, Eastern Cape, and here in Gauteng, and their livelihoods are implicated um, by the rolling blackouts, and that's why they've joined the action. And then, second, lastly, Mastered Seed Foundation. A cameo appearance here from the church. This is an outfit described as a Christian family foundation, and they're a non-profit, and they also part of this litigation. And then lastly, Ms. Zinchle Nalo, who's the director of Full Up Property Investment, and they are a printing and branding company um, that operates from Mtata in the Eastern Cape. So those are the various actors legally that have decided to write this letter of demand to the state and to the state-owned entity, ESCOM. What do they want? Well, there's a couple of things that they want, and it's really, really interesting. And whether they will get them is another question altogether. But let me give you a detailed sense of what it is that they want, and this is really important. It is detail, but it's detail that's easy to understand, and it's detail that's important when we debate politically and legally what whether this is a good tactic, firstly, to have embarked upon, and secondly, when we debate what the odds are of them succeeding and gaining anything, either politically or legally, out of this action. So, firstly, they want to know, with absolute transparency from the government, what exactly the deal is between South Africa and the United States of America, which had provided loans of $8 billion to South Africa, to help it, quote-unquote, shift from coal. And these potential litigants are saying, or the lawyers are saying on behalf of these clients at any rate, quote, our clients do not understand the nature of the commitment that the country has entered into with the USA, particularly 
because it has also been reported that South Africa's coal exports have increased by 700%. So the first demand is for total transparency on what the content of that deal is with the USA. Second demand, they want to know the precise nature of the agreement that has been reached with the USA. And if it's in writing, they want a actual copy of the agreement. Third demand. If there's this relationship between South Africa and the USA, you know, as far as this commitment is to shift away from coal, then presumably there is a decision that had been taken to abandon coal as a source of energy. And the clients of the law firms do not know factually whether this is the case, but they want explicit clarity on this matter. Quote, our clients demand to know whether or not there is a decision taken by government or anyone to shift from coal. So they actually want to know pointedly whether that is the South African policy position. That's the third demand. Fourth demand. NUMSA is concerned about, you know, what the closure, the impact of closure to power stations are on employment. And if there's no alternative plan, then, you know, unless there isn't, plan that is rational, reasonable, and feasible, then the power stations can't be closed down. And so, again, there's a demand here that government agrees that it has an obligation to ensure that the power stations return to functionality to produce the required levels of energy available and also to secure jobs. So, again, essentially a demand for transparency around the financials, the economic data, the impact on employment and energy security in relation to closing down any any power station sets. Uh, the fourth one. The fifth demand uh, is a cluster of them, and I'm going to try and just summarize them. But basically, <laughs> they want, and I'm chuckling because I don't think they're going to get half of these things, quite frankly, in law. But they basically demand, that's the language used, that the state should provide a bunch of undertakings, that there won't be load shedding, without procedural fairness and opportunity to make alternative arrangements, um, that load shedding will stop with immediate effect. That um, there should be a sp specific timetable, alternatively, as to when the load shedding will end and what the reasons are for any alternative timetable at any rate. And that there should be, in addition, a publicly available clear statement to end load shedding. And it must include resources available to ensure that that is the case. Now, the next pointed demand is also fanciful, that in fact, the 18.6% increase in the electricity tariff hike, or tariff rather, full stop by NURSA, will not be implemented, depending on the outcome of a court challenge to it. And lastly, if this cluster of demands, specific demands, that the state will, in fact, make reasonable disclosure to the public on the challenges driving the energy crisis, and that it will compensate everyone who has suffered quantifiable financial losses. And they want a response by the 20th of January, which is basically the end of this week. So that's who made the demands. They made the demands via their lawyers to the minister and the CEO of ESCOM. 
and what I've just read out to you are the set of demands. So the question then, to get to the second part of this entry of Eusebius on Time's life. So that's the explanation of what's going on. So there's two sets of questions here. What's going on politically? And at the intersection of politics and lawfare, what are we to read into this? And what kind of meaning might we create for ourselves to get to the grip of, of this news item? Well, in terms of the politics, it's quite simple, really. And I would actually, as a commentator and as a citizen, I would give the people who were listed one to ten the benefit of the doubt in terms of a bona fide desire to see energy insecurity disappear, the consequences of these blackouts to be reduced or eliminated entirely. I mean, obviously, there is political gain if you succeed in embarrassing government by winning a law case against them and successfully challenging an existing government policy as irrational and not fair and not reasonable, right? And if you could somehow crank out a convincing legal basis for that critique of the governance of the country at the moment, and specifically the policy at the heart of the governance failure, then obviously politically, everyone who's listed in terms of the political actors in that list of 10, they benefit politically. But I mean, quite frankly, life in South Africa at the moment is so precarious economically and in other ways that I don't think we need to spend much time dwelling on what the political motive is here. You can be motivated always when you act, and this is true of politics as it is the rest of our lives, by multiple motivating factors simultaneously. So, of course, these guys are involved here in real politics and the business of trying to capture power and capture it away from the ANC. And that's legit. I mean, that's what contestation is about. And at the same time, it can also be the case that genuinely, if you, for example, a trade union outfit, that you care about a job security of your members, and secondly, your members are typically part of the working class, if not the working poor, quite frankly, and you know and understand directly from engaging them and collating their stories what the experiential impact is of energy insecurity on their lives. And so for me, quite frankly, this is one of those instances where I wouldn't try and waste too many words in writing or in the spoken form trying to make sense of some complicated game-theoretic motivation behind this action. It is very simple. It is putting the ANC government on trial, and it is also simultaneously not going to benefit only politically, the politicians listed there, but yes, you and I as ordinary citizens, we want this to come to an end, and there are many ways in which to hold a government accountable, and some, one of it is to vote them out of power. That's the most obvious, the most classic in terms of how politics work. And the others are, between general elections, you can't wait for the next election. Then you have protests, you have contestation in Parliament, you have oversight mechanisms, the Chapter 9 institutions, you've got the media playing an accountability role, but you can also use litigation, and that's the whole point of constitutional supremacy. It is also one of the tools in the toolbox for how you hold the government responsible, short of going to an election which can't happen every second month. That brings me finally to the question of, okay, even if we agree the ANC on the question of energy and security has let us down in the state, one of the prospects of them winning this, 
And I've spoken to a couple of my friends who are some of the top legal minds in the country just to pressure test my own intuition around the legal aspect of this. And they are not united in their viewpoints. So I think it's an interesting case legally where good progressive lawyers can reasonably disagree amongst themselves about what a court should do. And before we even get there, whether or not this is sensible legal action to undertake in the first place from a legal strategy point of view. I'm not going to work through all of that because I wanted to keep this short enough for you to have a better understanding than when you started listening, but not so much that you are buried under the detail. I'll rather do a separate episode of Eusebius on Times Live in which I drill down into the legalities and maybe speak to one or two experts on the legalities. But to say something a little bit more substantial, my own view coincides with those lawyers I spoke to that shared with me the intuition that this is a long shot legally. And the reason is fundamentally the following. There's detail to be given, but I'll leave that for another episode. Fundamentally, it is not unconstitutional for government to have bad policies. And I think, all things being equal, courts, even courts that are otherwise willing to be quite prepared to test the limits of separation of powers in the interest of justice and constitutional supremacy, courts in general should be and would be wary of interfering at the level of precision that is listed in the, te in the demands that I read out earlier. Quite literally to tell government, you must have the following policy. You must stop load shedding right now. You must disclose the full details of your agreements with Joe Biden. That is a level of directing of the courts, from the courts to the executive that I think would make many constitutional court judges, rightly so, uncomfortable in terms of where their power ends and where the legitimate authority of an executive branch of government begins. And the reason why, of course, there's still space for reasonable disagreement is that there is case law, the most classic example being, for example, the TAC judgment, where you can go to court or housing cases, some water cases, some cases in healthcare, um, such as dialysis treatment, where there has been litigation at the highest court where government's policies have been tested against various standards that are derived from the constitution, case law, and other sources of law. So we don't live in a country where you can't go and test the constitutionality and specifically the rationality and reasonableness of government policy. But I just think that the list of very precise demands for what government should do, shouldn't do, and commit to and expose publicly is so precise and detailed that I cannot imagine there would be any, certainly not unanimous agreement amongst jurists, even jurists who are comfortable with putting government on trial in relation to constitutional norms, that um, they should be directing government what to do. And what is the conclusion of that? Well, the conclusion of that is that these political actors and the civil society organizations that are listed 
had better have a plan B and to make sure that they simultaneously use multiple strategies that reinforce one another to try and achieve the ultimate objective of making sure that blackouts come to an end, alternatively that the government of the day responsible for them, who doesn't seem to have an answer to the problem, is no longer in power. And that really is about organizing in communities and that is probably ultimately about an electoral victory. Of course you can't wait until the next general election to understand accountability between elections but I think this particular case is so ambitious in scope that I suspect the odds of a legal victory are probably thin and so from a politics point of view the most you can hope for is that the airtime that you are getting podcasts like this, a news item on the 24-hour news channels or on online media, social media, that you gain a bit of traction and that even if you lose the case, that secretly that you take up a share of public discourse for a while that begins to build the basis for electioneering against the ANC.